As they say in some older traditions, hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went out from there, of course his engagement with the Pharisees, and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. And Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. I'm going to read the whole chapter, by the way. I know it just says up there, 28. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Jesus said to them, I have a good idea. (laughs) How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we thank you for for good mothers. Uh, There's a good mother in the text. And uh, Lord, from your word, there's, there's good things to learn, things to apply. And Lord, I pray that you would minister to us accordingly. And Lord, I know just walking through the church and looking at all the faces that there are many, many different things on the hearts and minds of your people, Um, very few of which that I would be able to address here at the pulpit and not even certain that I'm competent, Lord, to address those kinds of things, but you are. And so I pray, Lord, by your spirit that you would minister to every individual today, those with heavy hearts, those that are in sorrow, Lord, those that are in sin, those that are in joy, I just pray that you would do your perfect work, Lord, in their lives this morning. And I pray also that we would do our due diligence today uh, to honor our mothers, to bless them, to encourage them and show our appreciation. So Lord, we thank you, we love you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So we are going to finish the chapter in spite of what the screen says this morning, yeah. So just ignore that. So it says, then Jesus went out from there, uh, that is uh, where he was at 
on the west side of the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, uh, where he was engaging with the Pharisees, uh, to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Yeah, I was afraid that it would do that. Can you see that? Well, it's too bad if you can't. It's, it's all I got. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, the region of Tyre and Sidon is, is known uh, as Phoenicia, Syrophoenicia. And so there in the upper left portion of the map, you see Phoenicia. And then right about the E, you see Tyre uh, there on the coast. It's, it's about 35 miles uh, north and west of the Sea of Galilee that you can barely see with all of the, the names there covering it. And then Sidon is another 25 miles north of there. So Jesus has actually traveled quite a ways by foot uh, to that region. The question is, why would he travel so far north and west outside of Israeli territory? Well, in the previous section, uh, Jesus had said some things that weren't exactly appreciated by the Pharisees, right? You remember, he accused them of dishonoring their parents in violation of God's law, uh, and then uh, they were teaching others also to do the same, uh, also a thing forbidden by the law. In fact, Jesus says if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, uh, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and then drowned into the depths of the sea, Jesus didn't believe in violence at all. Um, and I was telling some the other day, it's important to note that in the Greek, there's two different words for millstones. And I've pointed this out to you before. There's a millstone that's, you know, this big, and it's the hand grinder. And then there's the millstone that is like this big and really thick, the upper millstone. And it takes a, a donkey or two to, to turn that thing. Which millstone do you think Jesus mentioned? So, in other words, if you cause people to stumble, to disobey God's word, there is no chance of your survival. If you had the one millstone tied around your neck and you're a really good swimmer, there might be a chance. But with the 800-pound millstone, there's just no chance. So, God and Christ, they take very seriously this, this misleading of people uh, from the teaching of the word. So they dishonored their parents, teach, taught others to dishonor their parents. And then it was by means of their tradition that they circumnavigated the law of God, which is just another way of breaking the law. And then to the Pharisees, Jesus implied that they were worthy of death because of it. They had, as it were, earned the millstone award. Okay? And of course, this sort of interaction with them wasn't endearing the Pharisees to Jesus. It was just giving them more reason to dispose of him, to, to get rid of him, uh, challenging them publicly, uh, rebuking them. And, uh, you know, when it came to religious leaders doing these things, Jesus wasn't interested in saving fa face at all. Okay, I think there's definitely a time for that. But when religious leaders uh, sin so publicly, uh, and there's witnesses to it, even as Paul says, they get rebuked publicly. And uh, they got it uh, very clearly. And uh, yeah. So how many of you guys uh, relish uh, yourself being engaged in confrontation? It's a couple hands. But how many of you love a good fight, observing one? Now all the liars are like, well, I mean... <laughs> and like Jesus, we need more good solid men and women to stand up 
and to confront those who are leading people astray. Don't you think? Uh, being quiet um, at the wrong time is cowardly. And Jesus demonstrates that there's a time when this confrontation needs to happen. The issues need to come to the surface. And if rebuke has been earned, it must be delivered. Uh, where correction is necessary, it must be made. And, uh, and he doesn't do it because he's just interested in uh, shaming them, as it were, or rebuking them. He's interested in all of those people that are around. And that's one of the reasons I've enjoyed healthy uh, debate in theology and philosophy, not so much because of the opponent on stage, but because of the, the crowd out there that's listening, the, especially young minds at universities, where they're, they're, they're in the developmental stage of what they're going to believe. And uh, when you have good, winsome uh, Christian thinkers engaged that way, uh, it's good for the audience. It's not always good for the opponent, uh, but they're the ones that have publicly led people astray. And so I don't mind if they're gently, in a godly fashion, proven to be ludicrous in all of their thinking. Amen? Jesus often would rebuke them as a way of ministering to the people in the audience. As in the days of Jeremiah, um, the shepherds, that is the spiritual leaders of Israel, were just, again, leading people astray. And they were facilitating disobedience. They were leading in disobedience by example and setting the word of God aside for whatever kind of tickled their fancy. We know in the book of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, we've certainly come to that in our culture. And so just as it was in the days of Jeremiah and Jesus, it's true of our own day. Uh, Paul, oftentimes speaking of uh, what it seems appear, appears to be our day, he says the time is coming when those who profess Christ would not endure sound doctrine. That's, you know, good solid teaching, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That's 2 Timothy 4.3. So more than ever, uh, I think uh, that the leadership and the laity of the church, they're running toward the world and all of its ways. And if they're not turned back by the truth of God's word, they're going to they're perish together. And if you uh, stand in their way, which I believe that you should, uh, like Jesus did, you're going to face their vengeance. But it's the right thing to do. And it's the only way to recover some of them. But if the church remains passive in regard to what's happening out there and even in the church, uh, we'll just watch them fall and it'll be tragic. We need to take Jesus's example and, uh, and get after it. Equip ourselves, be trained and be winsome and do it with humility and with fear. Amen. Oh, cool. So back to my question, why did Jesus travel so far north outside of the land of Israel uh, simply because he's trying to avoid the Pharisees so they can cool off a little bit, okay? Just so they can cool off. Uh, he, he knew he would face the wrath. Uh, that It's been appointed by his father, uh, but his father had appointed that time uh, very specifically. It would, fall, it would be following the, the Passover, uh, which was the next Passover, and right now we're about a year from that, from that time, so... So Jesus just avoided the Pharisees for a bit, but uh, he'll be right back at it with them in chapter 16. 
So he's there up in Phoenicia, and behold, a woman of Canaan, a Canaanitess, came from that region and cried out to him, or was crying out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. So we're in pagan territory, and a pagan woman, a Gentile, a Canaanite, uh, a native of that area, has come to Jesus. And uh, why would she come to Jesus? The word has gotten out, hasn't it? Uh, At the very beginning of the gospel, uh, you know, there around the Sea of Galilee, and uh, because of the, the farms in that area, uh, there's a lot of trade, a lot of merchants, people traveling through. I mean, just imagine what you would do if you were traveling through the Galilee. You noticed a crowd of people, and one after another, a lame person, a blind person, uh, whatever, was being brought to Jesus, a paralyzed person. And you just watched as, as Jesus laid hands on them and healed them. What would you do when you went back to Tyre and Sidon? You would tell people. And uh, if you had somebody that was in desperate need at that moment, you would probably turn around and go back to Galilee and look for this healer, okay? And uh, so word has gotten up there. They know that there's this rabbi in Galilee who heals everyone who comes to him. So when she discovers that he's in town, she brings her desperation to him. But then when she cries out to him, she refers to him as Lord, son of David, Now, as people traveled, they must have heard what the crowd had been calling Jesus. And so she repeats this in in respect to him and in honor. And there's also evidence that the surrounding nations were aware of the fact that the Jews were waiting for their Messiah, who would be a descendant of David, okay? And, uh, and, And actually, the Romans were very nervous about anybody that might come on the scene who the Jews would think was the Messiah, son of David. Uh, that would be a competing uh, emperor, if you will. And so it made the, the, the Romans very nervous. No secret to anybody, really. So anyhow, this woman was desperate for the sake of her daughter, who was severely, uh, the word can also be translated, violently possessed by the demon. Severely, violently. When we look at other uh, demon possessions in the Bible, we'll do one later on. Uh, with when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, the father comes to Jesus and says, my son is, is demon-possessed, and the demon tries to throw him into the fire. And so there's this, this attempt to destroy the host, as it were. And so this young girl is violently possessed. Now, I can't imagine. It's, it's hard enough to stand by your child and, when they're being uh, ravished by a disease, Uh, or some illness, and you can do nothing about it. But then to have a living spiritual being torment and violently harass a child, and you are completely powerless. All you can do is observe and maybe keep them away from fire or water or whatever that could kill them. What a terrible, tragic thing. So she comes to Jesus in desperation, but he answered her not a word, And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. So in response to the woman's agony, Jesus makes no response, but her desperate pleading was driving the disciples mad, so they now desperately plead with Jesus to get rid of her. Everyone's desperate in this story. (laughs) Want something from Jesus. 
But he answered and said, I was not sent except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I think that Jesus is talking to everybody, the disciples and to the woman. Okay, but I think more specifically to the woman. And the statement here, regardless of who he's talking to, is important. The Gentile, though not off limits to what Jesus offered, his mission at the time was not to the Gentiles, but it was to the Jews. You remember when Jesus sent out the 12 the first time in Matthew 10, he said to them in verse 5 and 6, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. So don't go to the half-breeds because Samaritans were half Jew and half something else. And don't go to the Gentiles at all, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom especially prior to the cross, was really for the Jew, but then it was after the resurrection that Jesus gave the commission to then extend the gospel to the Gentiles as well, just as the prophets many times foretold that when the Messiah comes, the gospel would go to the world. Jesus also mentions this when he says, he says, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, that is, they're not of the Jewish fold, them Also, I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd, John 10, 16. So it's certainly anticipated. It's just currently not the time. But then even as Paul, when he left the borders of Israel, and and he went to uh, Syria, and then he went into Turkey, he went into Macedonia, he went into Rome, all of that, his, his MO was to initially enter the city And then on the Sabbath, go to the synagogue and preach to the Jew. And then on the first day of the week, Sunday, and the rest of the week, he would go into the marketplace and preach to the Gentiles. But our story demonstrates, and even in the book of Acts, that they would never step over a Gentile to reach a Jew. Aren't you glad? They wouldn't do that. So our story here in Matthew seems to be a bit of a foretaste of what was coming. The gospel would soon break like water through a dam and then just burst into the Gentile lands. So while the ministry to the Gentile was not his primary mission, it was a mission appointed here by his father, taking a break from the Pharisees to reach this woman. Then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. Now in my mind, I see Jesus, you know, walking away from her and she's pleading with him and pleading with him. And and he says, I didn't come for the Gentiles, but for the lost house of Israel. And so in my mind, what I see her doing is getting in front of Jesus. And the word is she prostrates herself before him. She worships him and she says, Lord, help me. And you see him stepping aside and she shuffles to the side. (laughs) She's great. She's not going to take no for an answer. But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, I'm not sure what goes through your mind when you hear that. Okay. Now, Here, there is a difference in uh, this issue of of dogs. Um, It's not the mangy mutt that hangs around the trash heap outside the city. Uh, This is a puppy. This is more of of a pet. Now, the the Jews did refer to Gentiles as that mangy, nasty dog that hung out at the trash heap that burned constantly outside the city. But they didn't use this particular term. Jesus isn't using that racial slur, but he does compare her to a little dog. 
So what's this all mean? Well, regardless of how special a little dog may be to a family, that little puppy should not be privileged, so privileged as to eat the children's portion, the children's portion. So in the illustration, the, the bread clearly refers to the, the benefits of the gospel. The children are the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and the little dogs are the Gentiles. So Jesus does compare the Gentiles to little dogs, not as mangy mutts. And so Jesus is saying it would not be right to take the benefits of the gospel intended for the Jew at this stage in history and give it to the Gentiles. The Gentile in the context does not hold at this time the same priority as the Jew. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She's not phased one bit by being called a little dog, is she? But instead, she just reciprocates with this wit, I think. She just, she's, she's fast on her feet. She responds with, yes, agreed. It would be wrong to give a dog, no matter you know, how cute, the portion of food that belongs to the children. Children are of much greater value than a dog. She's affirming all of this. Okay? Yet, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And if you've ever watched dogs do that, they're happy to do so. Okay? They're not complaining about uh, anything. They're just happy to sniff around the ground and lick up whatever. Dogs are nasty. So in other words, she says, Lord, I'm not asking for the children's portion. I'm not not even asking for the leftovers. She's saying, I'll take whatever the children drop on the floor, things they're unconscious of, things they don't even care about. I'll take whatever a dog is happy to get. I'm not interested in what belongs to the Jews. That would That would be more than sufficient for my daughter's needs. All she needs, as I've heard from so many reports, are the crumbs. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. That's sweet. Now, impressing Jesus was a rare occasion in the Gospels. Uh, But this woman and the Roman centurion were able to do it with their faith. They're the only two people that Jesus praised for the measure of faith that they had. What's unusual about that? They're both pagans. They're both Gentiles. And they're the only people that Jesus praised. He He was also, at least for faith, he was also impressed with the widow in the temple when she cast her might into the treasury, and that being really all the money that she had. Um, That sacrifice, that level of sacrifice, Jesus was very impressed with it. But getting a rise out of him uh, like this was rare. I mean, the Pharisees could get a rise out of him, but other people, not as much. And I think something that's important to point out is that getting this response out of the woman was intentional. It was intentional. Jesus knew all along what he would do for her, okay? But he took the opportunity to draw faith out of her, just as God has done many times throughout the scriptures. It seems maybe that it feels like maybe he's putting you off, but he's not. He did this with Abraham and Sarah regarding the birth of Isaac, uh, the disciples with Lazarus, Jairus with his daughter. Um, Just just believe, he says. He's he's trying to inspire faith in him. The father with his demon-possessed son, Jesus says, just believe. He says, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. So what does Jesus do? He evicts the demon. So the goal was to, to draw out faith, to bring more faith. 
God tested Abraham over and over until something I think really amazing could be said about Abraham. Because early in the life of Abraham, not so impressive, right? Not so, wives, it's Mother's Day. What did he do to Sarah in Egypt? Ponder off. That should be in the translation. It's a Hebrew variant. Yeah. Listen to what Paul says. Of course, this is the latter life of, of Abraham. He's grown in faith. He says, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Romans 4, 20 through 21. So Jesus wasn't putting this woman off, trying to get rid of her. He was pressing her to fully exude her faith. You know, it's interesting. The disciples were always being rebuked. He says, oh, you of little faith. And he says this to them after, and they deserved it, by the way, because they had witnessed hundreds and hundreds of miracles, both over illness, over demon possession, over nature. He, he multiplied bread and fish, it's miracle after miracle. And they struggled in faith. But this woman simply believed out of a report that she had heard, and she refused to be deterred, refused. Faith just believes even when it may feel like it's being deterred. I think there's some, some lessons in this story. Well, for the disciples, and I think, and the church as well, to learn that Jesus wasn't interested in turning away humble, broken, desperate people, even if they were pagans, or even if they were of some other uh, immoral behavior, whatever. Uh, if they were humble, if they were broken, desperate, uh, Jesus would minister to their needs, You know, the scriptures tell us that God resists the proud, and it doesn't matter if they're a Christian, a Jew, a homosexual, a pagan, whatever. Whatever their political uh, thing is, he resists the proud, as he did in the previous section with the Pharisees. But the scripture says he gives grace to the humble, as we see with this woman. And this, that particular theology or doctrine had to be learned by the disciples before they went out into the world representing him. Uh, They couldn't turn away the needy, the hurting, or the desperate, regardless of their ethnicity. The disciples, like us, are to carry Jesus's compassion everywhere we go. But there's the other lesson here, as we've talked about mostly, because God is the one who decides who he heals and how he heals, it is for us to be persistent, to prove our faith, and to discover what God has in mind. Um, If he is pressing you however he decides to do it, Biblically, consistently in the scriptures, he is trying to draw out your faith uh, to prove that you do indeed trust him or maybe to demonstrate your lack of faith so that he can establish more faith in you. And it is important that we satisfy God with our faith before he satisfies our request. Amen? I mean, scripture says it's impossible to please him without faith. So we must believe. Remembering that persistent faith is not you know, guarantee that God will honor our request, just as God did not honor Paul's request to remove the thorn in his flesh. But faith pleases God, and through faith, we can accept whatever God decides on our behalf. Either, either way, faith is the recipient of grace, as Paul learned. And what was Paul's confession afterwards? Your grace is sufficient. So he basically said, Lord, heal me. The Lord said, no. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. And he said, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Now, the text indicates, of course, that Paul um, struggled with a little bit of pride in his accomplishments, 
and the thorn was there to buffet him, to keep him from becoming too proud. So perhaps if you're in some predicament, whether physical, spiritual, or whatever, uh, maybe God is trying to, it's in his grace and his mercy that he's allowed that to happen in your life. Amen? And I know it could be a hard pill to swallow, but it's better than sinning against God, right? Let's move on. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now, there's no time stamp in any of the Gospels that would indicate, you know, how long it's been since Jesus left Galilee, went to Phoenicia, and has returned to the Sea of Galilee. Um, there's just nothing. It just says that he returns to the Galilee, he skirts the shore. Now, in the text, it does mention mountains, and so because of their presence, Jesus had skirted, was skirting down the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, what is called the Golan Heights, or at least the, their foothills. And we don't know how far into the Golan he went, but he was apparently there for three days, as the text will indicate later. And it's important to, to point out as well that the east side of the Galilee was not Israeli territory, not at this time. So Jesus was still taking a break from the Pharisees. He's still avoiding them. The Pharisees didn't like to go outside of the land of Israel because they, they thought Gentiles were dirty and they didn't want to you know, get dirty, as we've seen in other places. That's why they were always washing themselves and as if washing can get off that kind of filth if it, if it existed. So he's there in Gentile territory among pagans. And they, of course, have heard. Many of them have surely seen. And they're, as, as you would, they're just bringing all of these people to him. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speak, the, the maimed made whole, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. I love especially the one that says maimed. The maimed were made whole. That'd be something if, to, to witness if you had your arm chopped off and then to have Jesus restore it, uh, that would be pretty amazing. Uh, Asher came to me the other day and, and uh, he was asking me why lizard's tails come off. Um, there's an experience there and how long it takes to grow back. And then he goes, but our fingers don't grow back. I said, no, unless Jesus is there and then they can. But what is important here in the text, uh, of course, Jesus is compassion and ministering to their physical health, but it's a very spiritual response, remembering that these are pagans. They're glorifying the God of Israel. That is the whole point of all of this, to bring people to faith in the God of Israel and of course, his Christ, who they're definitely believing in at this time. Now, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So again, the ethnicity of the multitude made no difference to Jesus. He had compassion on all. And even if he did minister to this particular multitude that was made up of Gentiles, it did not contradict the fact that his primary mission was to the Jews. And what he has done for them thus far, what he's about to do for them, is but breadcrumbs compared to all that he's done for the people of Israel, right? Yeah. So here's what happened. 
Because of their excitement over Jesus, they have been with him for three days now in the wilderness. That's some excitement, isn't it? Now it's come to a place where they have no food. They have quite a journey home. And Jesus, like a good shepherd, feels responsible for them. Okay? So he calls the disciples together, implying what he intends to do. But his disciples play dumb. Or maybe they didn't. It's hard to tell with the boys sometimes. And then his disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Jesus said to them, he's so gracious to them. How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few fish. Isn't it as if they've forgotten what happened just a few weeks earlier? That Jesus can take a very small amount of food and he can feed an army with it. This time there are seven loaves and and a few fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave to the multitude. Starting to wonder if Jesus just likes his own cooking. (laughs) The grammar suggests that he kept on giving. He kept on giving the disciples bread and fish. He kept on giving. And then they, of course, then kept on giving, kept on giving bread and fish to the multitudes. He was multiplying their numbers right before their eyes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Okay? Now in Matthew 14, Jesus fed the 5,000 men besides women and children, and it said that 12 baskets were filled with the fragments. This time Jesus feeds 4,000 men besides women and children. I don't know how many total, okay? And here it says seven large baskets were filled with the fragments that were left over. Now, I pointed out last time that one kind of basket was used in Matthew 14, and a different kind of basket was used here, and it's true. The basket in this story, uh, they're the larger of the baskets. Uh, Their sizes varied, but they were larger William Hendrickson translates it as as hamper. Uh, These baskets could be big enough for a body to lay down in them. Uh, The basket that was used to lower Paul down the wall of Damascus was this kind of basket, Acts 9.25. I wouldn't let anybody lower me down a wall unless that basket was made out of nylon. (laughs) I've read enough about rock climbing history that there's only one kind of safe climbing rope. Now, it's impossible to know how much, you know, extra food there was, but there was a lot, just as there was in the feeding of the 5,000. And because of the the different basket size, there may have been just as much food remaining this time as there was before. You know what I'm saying? There was a lot of food. So Jesus has now multiplied bread and fish on two different occasions. The first time feeding a Jewish audience, and the second time feeding a Gentile one. Some say that the 12 baskets remaining in the first feeding represented the 12 tribes, and uh, the seven baskets in the second represented the seven regions of Gentile nations. Possibly, I, the text doesn't say that, so I, I'm reluctant to just point that out as gospel. Yeah, why would he do that? Why would he do both? I mean, there's even risk involved in doing that for him ministering, reaching out to Gentiles, just as there was risk when he reached out to the Samaritans. But Paul, who at one time 
would have faulted Jesus for all of these things after his conversion. He says in Romans 3.29, is Yahweh the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentile? Yes, of the Gentiles also. There's only one God, the psalmist says, and he has compassion on all that he has made. Psalm 145, verse 9. So, of course, even though a covenant was made with Israel, all people are created in the image of God, which he takes very, very seriously. And that's why the promise was made in Genesis 12 that through Abraham, God would bless all the peoples of the world. Okay, now God has kept that promise by sending Jesus into the world. He is the fulfillment of that prophetic promise. He came to die for the sins of all people and by distributing the benefits of redemption by means of the resurrection so that whoever believes would be saved. So this is all a foretaste. This is just, you know, a foreshadowing of what is about to happen when it comes to the Gentile world. It's all done. He sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Now, in chapter 14, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus joined the boys on the boat via walking on the sea. And when they'd crossed over the sea, it says they came to the land of uh, Gennesaret. Okay? I had mentioned that one of the cities located in the plain was the city of Magdala, uh, who, who came from Magdala? Mary. Okay. Ma- Magdalene is not her last name. It's where she comes from. Here in chapter 15, Matthew tells us that they crossed over to the region of Magdala. Okay. Instead of going you know, to that fertile plain that was a couple miles inland, uh, they remain on the coast by the city of Magdala. They could even have parked their boat at the same spot. They just went to a different place. So Jesus has now returned uh, to Jewish territory, and uh, I bet you can guess who's waiting for him. That's right, the Pharisees. So the showdown uh, will begin once again in chapter 16. And it's important to point out again that the showdown, it's important because the controversy brings out, it draws out important issues that needed to be addressed that deeply affected uh, the people of Israel, just as it does in our culture. Okay, but we'll Save that for next, next week. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. And uh, I'll let you get your Mother's Day on. I know there's a guy in here who's going, I forgot. So you guys have probably heard of the legend where I forgot years ago. I'm just looking at the Shermans. They remember where I taught on marriage, divorce, and remarriage on a Mother's Day. Yeah. So thanks for being so gracious. And, sticking with me. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, we don't deserve any good thing from your hand, but you're compassionate. Your love, your mercy endures forever, and you have made us the object of your affection. As the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him, son of man that you would visit him. And Lord, you have visited us in the person of Christ. We thank you. Lord, we pray that as that attribute of yours is communicable, that like you, we would take your compassion to the world. And Lord, we have a great advantage because we're armed with the gospel and we're indwelt by your spirit. Lord, help us to represent you well, Lord, in terms of compassion. And Lord, I pray that as you have the prerogative to test our faith in any of our circumstances, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that and that we would be like this woman of Canaan, that we would be persistent 
that we would be diligent and that we would worship you as you appear to be ignoring us even though you're not and that we would just continue to trust. And Lord, by your grace, we would receive whatever comes to your hand with thankfulness. And Lord, I pray that today as we do um, seek to honor our mothers, Lord, that we would succeed and that they would be blessed, Lord. Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Lord bless you. Have a great day.